Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you and to worship the Lord together. What an awesome God we serve. All glory and honor to Him. Uh, one announcement, actually two. We will be having communion at the end of the service today, so if you're a believer, please, you're invited to partake of that. Um, I'll just, we'll all come up and receive and then pray and receive together as the team leads us in a song. And um, second one is after church next week, we're going to have a quarterly meeting. We like to just share how things are going and plans and what the Lord's doing and just to encourage one another. So after the service, probably half an hour or so, we'll have that meeting. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are our Father, that we can call you that in truth because we have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And thank you for your word that you have so much to teach us of you and there's so much you want to do to change us, to make us more like you. And we're grateful that you love us, that you are good, you are faithful, and that you are trustworthy. Lord, we worship you today and we exalt your holy name and we thank you for this opportunity to gather as brothers and sisters in Christ, made one uh, as his body. And we thank you that you have much to say and give us ears to hear, Lord, fill us with your spirit to receive and walk in and to proclaim all that you say in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Job chapter 35, starting in verse 1. If you'll turn in your Bibles there. Would you agree that it's a common thing for us to think when we've invested time, effort, and resources, or that proposition is put to us that we should invest time and resources is, what's in it for me? Like, what do I get out of the deal? I always liked baking because that meant I could eat what was baked, if it turned out well, of course. So there was a benefit. I mean, what's, what's the point of being in a union and paying dues if you're not receiving any benefit for that? Or why should you pay for car insurance that you cannot claim or have a gym membership you never use? Or like you think that, okay, I'm going to commit to, to going to, to buying this membership because that will be what I need to urge me to do it. But if it's not working, then you have to think about, well, is it benefiting me? On the flip side, you've experienced the benefits of going to physio or tutoring or weight training after time. That, and I wonder how many times we started doing something beneficial uh, for our marriage, for our health, for our professional advancement, but quit too soon because we didn't see the results we immediately hoped for. Like we didn't get the benefit right away. And so we said, well... Why am I doing this? And we quit too soon. People are willing to work very hard and invest themselves when they're assured of an eventual benefit. I can speak for myself when I became, when I worked in a trade, uh, working with fiberglass for $10.50 an hour. I didn't do that because I liked getting itchy every day and breathing fiberglass, but because it meant that in four years time, I would have a qualification. And then I could be a journeyman and a foreman and maybe a superintendent, maybe a project manager for a corporation. There was a place to go if you were willing to work hard. There was opportunity for advancement. And so that's why I persisted. In the midst of trials, Job was unable to see the benefit. He saw no benefit and neither could I for his great loss and the pains that he suffered deprived of his 10 children, his livelihood, his wealth, his friends attacked him. 
God was silent. He's deathly ill. In his pain, he was not receptive to trying to look on the bright side of things. Elihu, he was stirred to speak to Job, to tell him he's at work, whether you know it or not, Job, that God, he's righteous, glorious, he's just, he's worthy of our trust. And sometimes we imagine if God would just tell us what he's doing or what there's going to be beneficial toward us at the end, we could get through. But I disagree because we're easily overwhelmed. Oftentimes we are unwilling to press on because we don't believe it's worth the cost that's required of us. When I came into the trade, there were many apprentices who began, but only two finished after four years. And we all had the same benefits extended to us. So just because you know something or something's like, hey, you serve out this program, this is the benefit, that's not enough for us. But God, he's gracious, he's faithful. He knows what he's doing. He will accomplish everything he intends. And so instead of asking what's in it for me, we're better served to say how good and awesome and glorious is God. Because that changes the way we approach everything in the midst of the trial. And that's why God's made us. That we'd use our mouths not to complain, but to praise him, to exalt him. We're picking up in Job 35 with Elihu speaking in verse 1. Moreover, Elihu answered and said, Do you think this is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your companions with you. Look to the heavens and see, and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. If you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a man such as you, and your righteousness a son of man. Job claimed that he suffered unjustly at the hand of God. Elihu was angry with the insinuation that God was unjust with his dealings in, with men. Like he's like, if you're accusing God of doing wrong, you're wrong, Job. God doesn't do wrong. He's not unjust. Job's friend assumed that Job's suffering was as a result of his sin, that God was punishing him. Elihu explained how trials and pain are ways that God instructs us, ways that he works to save man. And Elihu seeks clarification um, of what Job meant in questioning God. And it's true that God does teach us through trials, but it's important that we don't focus on just learning the lesson because God wants more than just us to learn facts. He wants to change us to be more like him. He wants us to be thinking how he thinks, to be glorifying him in faith. He's like, Job, what do you mean when you said, like, what's in it for you to walk uprightly? When you've walked uprightly and it seems like it, it panned out with suffering. He pointed out the inconsistency with Job's desire to be justified if his innocence was worthless. It'd be kind of like saying, this money is worthless, and then try to use that money to purchase something. He's saying, you're in two minds about this, Job. I'm going to draw this out. I'm going to make sense of this. Because Job had said this concerning the wicked man. 
in Job 21, 15. Who is the almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? Now, Job was not saying those words of himself. He was saying that this is how the wicked man lives. And now Elihu uses those words and says, but Job, if you're questioning God's justice, you're like that wicked man who, who doesn't see the benefit in praying because now you're suffering. And he uses an object lesson of the clouds that hung overhead to say, God is mightier than you. His ways are higher than yours. We look at the clouds and they can obscure the light of the sun or the moon and the stars. And without the assistance of a plane or spacecraft, we can never rise above them. And he's saying, you know, those clouds, they just show us how awesome God's ways are. And nothing that you do can change them, right? Nothing that we do can alter who God is or what he has said. Nothing we do can disturb his sovereignty or his plans or his goodness, now, we, we are influenced by countless things, right? You get the news report of the weather, and that changes the clothing that you wear, or if you're going to take your umbrella with you or not, right? We're influenced by the thing that we saw on TV, by our app that tells us rain is coming, and then we're like, where's the rain? It didn't come. If we don't eat, we get cranky. If we don't sleep, we are short-tempered. If we drink too much coffee, we stay awake when we would rather be sleeping. A child can be very hyper around their friends or if it's a, in a, a special day, like it's just, they are just out of control. <laughs> so we're totally influenced by what day it is or what we've eaten, what we're drinking, what we want to do, what we're thinking. But God's wisdom and righteousness, it's perfect in himself. It's not impacted by the things that we do. He's not made weak by sin. He's not threatened by deceit. He's not influenced or inspired by us doing good. He's like, you know what? That's inspirational. I'm going to do something good because of you doing that good thing. No, God is good in himself. Elihu says, your wickedness affects a man such as you and your righteousness, the son of man. Sin does not corrupt God, but sin corrupts us. Sin impacts us and the lives of others. When a child disobeys, loving parents administer discipline and correction. But obedience is rewarded with praise and privileges. The decisions we make to trust God now, it impacts our lives now for good and for eternity. And conversely, if we do what is Evil in God's sight. David said in Psalm 55, 23, bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. That sin can cut your life short. And we need to be aware that the choices we make have a direct impact upon our spiritual health, our quality of life, and that when someone suffers, it's not only due to sin, their sin or sin in the world, but God is at work doing something as higher than the clouds are above us, that only God knows. And in Job's case, he would bring it to light. Job 35 verse 9. Because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heaven? There they cry out, but he does not answer. Because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to empty talk, nor will the Almighty regard it. 
Although you say you do not see him, yet justice is before him, and you must wait for him. And now, because he has not punished in his anger, nor taken much notice of folly, therefore Job opens his mouth in vain. He multiplies words without knowledge. Elihu shows how wickedness impacts the lives of people. When they were oppressed, they cried out for aid. The book of Judges, it's filled with examples of God's people who he brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He established them in the land, but they went after the idols of the enemies, enemy nations around them. And they forsook the Lord God. And they cried out to God, not because he was their maker, but because they were just desperate for help. They wanted to get out of trouble. And so they cried out to God. And the fruit of their idolatry, it had these bitter consequences of being oppressed for years and decades. And finally, just out of desperation, not because he was their creator, they came to him. And God's worthy of much more glory than just being our get out of jail free or get out of trouble card, right? I mean, he is our maker. That's the point made here. He made us in his image. He's given us more understanding than the birds or the beasts. And he's revealed himself through his word and teaches us. He's given us a mind to think and mouths to enunciate words. He taught his people and what did they do? They bowed down to images of stone and wood. They forsook the Lord. When God delivered them into the hand of their enemies, then they sought the Lord Judges 10, it says that in this case, 18 years, they were distressed. They were oppressed and they cried out to God who answered them. It's like, how long must you suffer before you cry out to God? 18 years, they were in idolatry before they sought the Lord. God reminded me of, he reminded them of times that he had delivered them in this passage in Judges chapter 10. He's like, oh, I delivered you from them and from this group and from that. And he just trotted out all the ways that he had delivered them. And you chose to forsake me. And then he says in Judges 10 verse 13 through 16, go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. The King James says his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. Now the people wanted God to say, okay, yes, you're my people. I'm going to deliver you immediately. This wasn't the answer they wanted, but they submitted to it. In time, God would raise up a deliverer in Jephthah. Elihu says that God will not answer the cry of the proud man. God knows when our talk is empty, when it's cheap. Through the prophet Isaiah, God said a similar thing to Israel in Isaiah 1.15. He says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. And that's such a confronting image when we think, you've got the blood of innocent people on your hands, and then you spread out your hands to God, help me. And he's saying, but you have committed abomination before me. Should I listen to you? Wash your hands. Be cleansed. Forsake your sin. No amount of empty promises or sugar-coated lies are going to move God to acquiesce. He is righteous. He's gracious as well. Praise the Lord for that. In the book of Joshua, 
there was this dilemma where Joshua's brought the people in. Much of their inheritance has been uh, received by the people, but there was still yet land to be taken. And he says, when he gave that famous, choose this day whom you will serve speech, he said, you need to choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And they say, we will serve the Lord. And he says, you cannot because you still have your idols. You can't serve God. He won't forgive you until you get rid of them. God's not obligated to hear or answer those who have forsaken them, but he is gracious. He responds to our cries. His soul grieves when we are grieved. Turning your Bibles to Psalm 66, verse 17. David makes this wonderful connection between choosing to renounce sin and seeking the Lord in prayer and praise, just resting in his forgiveness. Psalm 66, verse 17. He says, I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. David knew he needed God's mercy. Grace was needed, and God heard his prayer. He attended to it. God's mercy is extended to all people who seek him. Humble confession of sin and repentance. It puts us in a posture to receive it. It's like we, we don't earn the right or the privilege of God hearing and answering our prayers because we repent. But when we repent, it's like cupping our hands to receive what God's already extended to us. He's extending mercy. He's extending forgiveness to you. Will you repent to receive it? Will you choose to draw near to him humbly to say, I can't do it and I need you. I need you to deliver me. I need you to change me. And God is faithful to do that. He is merciful. Elihu, he urged Job to wait patiently for God to justify him, even though he couldn't see God at work in his situation. And at the end, he says, and now because he is not punished in his anger, nor taken much notice of folly, therefore Job opens his mouth in vain. He multiplies words without knowledge. He asserts that God was not punishing Job for his sin. Job's sin was the foolish thought he knew better than God. Have you ever thought that you knew better than God? Hmm. Now we would never say, I think I know better than God. But we can insinuate that by our complaints, by the things that we say, or we're unwilling to rest. We're unwilling to yield because we think we know better. And I thought Zuck, he summed up this chapter well in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. He says, Elihu felt that Job could not be cleared by God as long as he questioned the value of serving him and prayed from a heart of pride while thinking that God does nothing about wickedness. Patience and pain, that's nigh impossible, right? We want the pain to be over, especially when we feel hard done by, as Job was. He's being falsely accused by his friends. They're, they're accusing him of being evildoer when he wasn't. Our confidence, it needs to rest in the goodness and the righteousness of God, not ourselves, and how blessed we are to know him and to serve him. And believing, as it says in Hebrews eleven six, 6, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that implies that it's not always immediate. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, who keep seeking him when they don't 
seem to hear an answer immediately, when there's not a change of how they're feeling or what's going on. But the reward is there. The reward is him and it's in him. We can be assured of God's mercy even when we feel helpless and victimized by injustice. Continuing in chapter 36, Elihu also proceeded and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. He asks his listeners to bear with him. There's still much more to speak about God, and isn't that always the case? His wisdom being infinite. It's pretty amazing how finite and forgetful we can be. We could spend the rest of our lives just being reminded of the things we've forgotten that we've heard about God or we once knew, but just kind of escaped our notice for a while. And then we could be instructed on all the things we've heard about God, but really didn't understand. We hadn't really applied it to our lives yet where we, we heard something, but it's like it just went over our heads. And then there's things that we could spend forever when God reveals himself in a new way. And we have a revelation that it was plain on the page, but it hadn't been impressed upon our hearts before. And it hadn't changed our minds. And we're like, wow, God is awesome. Never understood that. I never realized it like I am today. And I pray that we would come to that place of just revelation of the awesome God. An observation I have in this text is this is the third time where he calls God my maker. That's something Elihu says quite often. He speaks of God as his maker, the one perfect in righteousness and knowledge. Think about the one who made something and how they're the expert of the thing they have made. They know why they've made it. They know the purpose it was to serve. Um, Sometimes there's these antique items that they find and they're like, what is this thing? What was it used for? We have no idea. And they bring the experts out. They go, oh, this was actually used to do that. Oh, I had no idea. Now the maker would have known that. And the maker can also profit from the use of it and the royalties perhaps generated by the sale of it. Having been made by God, Elihu, he knows his existence, his abilities, his purpose. It comes from God who made him. That he's an obligation to God to serve him because he's been made according to those good purposes. As kids, we ascribe authority to our parents in sport. We honor the decisions of the referee, though we may grumble and not agree because we didn't see it the way they saw it. Under law, the decisions of the high court stand. How much more honor should we ascribe to God and his decisions and the things that he does and, and just defer to him as our maker, the one who is righteous and trustworthy and true. As the prophet Samuel said, the strength of Israel shall not lie. Love that. The strength of Israel shall not lie. God's will does not change. Job 36, verse 5. Behold, God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty in strength and understanding. He does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings, for he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in fetters held in the cords of affliction, then he tells them their work and their transgressions, that they have acted defiantly. 
God's not prejudiced or bigoted against anyone. He's created all mankind in his image. He doesn't reject those of low social standing or have favor towards the wealthy or the royals, the famous. He doesn't give preferential treatment to Jew or to Gentile. He doesn't withhold grace or hope from one group of people and give a double portion to another. It's extended to all. Jesus said, if you're hungry, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. That was a call to everyone. The wicked perish as a result of their wickedness, but God is gracious to deliver the oppressed, Elihu says. And not one person saved by the gospel is worthy to receive it. It is all by his grace we receive salvation and forgiveness. It's his mercy that he's revealed himself to us and sent his son to be our savior, to provide atonement for, with his own blood. And Jesus said, there is no one good but God. Only God is good. And Elihu pointed out how God's eyes were not withdrawn from the righteous. He exalts them to rule. But get this. He also allows them to be bound in fetters and cords of affliction. Now we think that we are bound by sin or bound by the enemy. But the reality is God binds us at times, his people. That's the context here. His people in afflictions. See, we, we grease the squeaky wheel, right? We give attention to the problem. In a classroom setting, I have found that the most disruptive children, they usually need the most attention, right? They're, they're the ones that need to be close to you and that you can have oversight of. And the one who is taking notes without passing them to others, that's not being disruptive, just being polite, raising their hand, doing the right thing. They don't have to be addressed as often. They don't get the same attention. And there's this persistent misconception that as children of God, now we've received his favor. We are now uh, privileged with his protection and guidance and presence. And, and some will say that when we align ourselves with God, well, we will be more in the sights of the enemy. Satan will take his shots at us more often because we're on God's side now. Now, whether that's true or not, I cannot say, but I can say as children of God, we ought to expect our heavenly father will chasten us. He will discipline us. He will afflict us and he will rebuke us because he loves us. And it's because we're his children. It's not because he hates us. It's not because he's done with us. We can expect suffering as God's children because God has plans to refine us and change us and change the way we think, change the way we live. We sing, my chains are gone. I've been set free. That's true concerning sin and the power of death that once enslaved us. But remember, Job was put in the affliction, in those chains of affliction for a season King Nebuchadnezzar, God calls him my servant. He was bound with insanity for seven years. Paul, God allowed a messenger of Satan to afflict him that he prayed would stop. And God said, no. To the end, he would know God's grace and that God's grace was sufficient for him. That his strength is made perfect in weakness. God's design in humbling Job in Nebuchadnezzar and Paul 
It was all the same. It was to keep them from pride. Pride is all about promoting and protecting and asserting self over others, even God. And we're often blind to it. We don't even recognize when something is with an attitude of pride. It's defiance against God in our hearts and minds. And God's gracious to expose it so we can humble ourselves before him, repent and praise his holy name. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. In Daniel 4.37. I mean, imagine being a king and then being made like having the mind of a beast for seven years. And his hair had grown into dreadlocks and his nails were like bird's claws. And he was just eating grass outside. And he was kind of just sequestered. At the end of his days, this is what happened. Daniel 4.37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven all of whose works are truth and his ways justice and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. That was his takeaway. Seven years of insanity. And he's saying everything God does is truth. All of his ways are justice. Praise him. Praise the Lord. Job 36, verse 10. He also opens their ear to instruction and commands that they turn from iniquity. If they obey and serve him, they will spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. But the hypocrites in heart store up wrath. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life ends among the perverted persons. He delivers the poor in their affliction and opens their ears in oppression. God opens the blind eyes and deaf ears to instruction. So the, the, the eyes that were blind, those who were bound in those fetters of affliction, it's like God now gives them the ability and capacity to perceive something they couldn't before. He opens their eyes. And think about this. Just because you passed the test and you are the top of the class, does that mean you're perfect? No. Doctors, engineers, tradies, they're all schooled and trained in different ways, they gain practical experience to perform their role. Yet every professional has their own strengths and weaknesses. You know that not every plumber is the same. Not every doctor is the same. They are all different. Those who graduate at the top of the class still have much to learn. Job was a righteous man who feared God and shunned evil, but he was not perfect. There's no perfect pastor, elder, deacon, board member, no matter how long we've served, how fruitful a ministry has been, or how much experience we have, we need God to open our ears, to open our eyes so we can see our own pride and our own need to humble ourselves before him, to forsake what he's calling sin for us. And daily we have that choice if we're going to serve and obey God or disobey and serve ourselves. Now, the context of the passage, it's focusing on the blessing of God's chastening and correction with those who already have good standing before God. So we are justified through faith in Christ. We have that righteous standing by grace through faith. But it doesn't mean that our lives are perfect and God wants to continue to change us to be more like him. And Job was experiencing this firsthand. A righteous man who, who did good and shunned evil. And we would think he doesn't need any correction. If he's righteous, he always does good and he, sh he shuns evil. He's perfect, but God's like work to do. 
I, I have more plans to change him to be even more in my likeness. I think the story of Shimei is a good illustration of this, how we've been made righteous. We have been accepted into the beloved. And so we ought to walk worthy of that calling. Shimei was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a relative of King Saul. Now, when Absalom was usurping the throne and David chose to leave Jerusalem, Shimei met him along the way, this Benjamite. And it says he started throwing rocks at him. He started cursing him in front of this whole procession of people. And he's saying, God's outing you as the wicked, bloodthirsty man you are, David, which was totally untrue. But David wore it. He owned it and just said, you know, maybe one of his, one of his men said, should I go cut off his head for saying the things he's saying? And he's like, you know, no, may the Lord reward me good for his cursing this day. Let him alone. Just let him be. Let, let the dog bark. So he kept barking at David, kicking up dust. And it wasn't long before David was restored to the throne in Jerusalem. Guess who was one of the first people who came to David and prostrated himself before him? Shimei. He comes before him and says, you know, I just pray that you overlook those things that I said about you. Uh, I was wrong. I sinned. I'm sorry. And David said, you will live. Then after King Solomon took the throne after David, he talked to Shimei. He said, you know, there's, there's an agreement we need to have that you will live within the confines of Jerusalem. And it's in exchange for your life because of the things that have happened. So you live in Jerusalem. You don't cross the Brook Kidron. The day you cross it, it's against yourself that you've done that. You will die. And Shimei is like, that's a great deal. I get to live. I get to have a house here. This is wonderful. I'll do it. Well, it says in 1 Kings 2.38, and Shimei said to the, the king, the saying is good as the Lord my king has said, so your servant will do. And he dwelt in Jerusalem many days. Three years later, however, his servant ran away to Gath. And it says he saddled his donkey and went to go retrieve him. 1 Kings 2, 42 and 45. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you saying, know for certain that on the day you go out and travel anywhere, you will surely die. And you said to me, the word I have heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? The king said, moreover to Shimei, you know, as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father, David, therefore the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So King Solomon, by this little uh, agreement that he would live within Jerusalem, it exposed the hypocrisy in the heart of Shimei and his blood was on his own head. He had been given grace to preserve his life, but he chose to disobey and justice was served. And see what we would do is say that whole arrangement was unfair. We'll blame the arrangement. It was a bad arrangement. It was too confining. It was restrictive. No, it was grace and it was agreed to. It's like, we want to claim that God stacked the deck because we chose to play out of order. And say that it's his problem. But no, the hypocrisy was Shimei's problem and the situation drew it out. And that's something that God 
will do. He will reveal our hypocrisy so that we would turn from it, so that we would choose to honor him. They look, his friends, Job's friends, they looked at his, his suffering and said, punishment for sin. Elihu said, this is an opportunity to hear from God, to receive correction, to grow in the knowledge of God, to obey him. Though silent, God has not forsaken him. And in his trouble, God intended to help and to save him. God's wrath is stored up for hypocrites, but he also delivers the poor in their affliction and opens their ears in oppression. Job was feeling like, I never signed up for this. Like when I chose to follow God, I never imagined this could be the result. And that's how he was feeling. Maybe you feel like that too. But Elihu's point is that God was working to help him to deliver and to save. And the mark of hypocrisy, did you notice that? That Elihu points out? He says, they do not cry for help when he binds them. When God binds them, they don't cry out to him for help. That is the mark of a hypocrite. Hmm. If you're in trouble or you're hurting and you don't cry to God for help, that is the mark of a hypocrite. And he's bringing that out here. We have a maker. We have someone who loves us, whom we know is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, the almighty, the great I am, the king of kings and Lord of lords, our maker. And we do not cry out to him. We look for help elsewhere. He is the one that we look to or else we are hypocrites. And it is good for us to notice all those false supports that we look to. Rather than the Father who instructs us, who corrects us, and chastens us, conforming us to his will. Jesus came to save us. The Holy Spirit's been sent to help and to comfort us. Like if we can't find help there, why should we think it's anywhere else? And it's only in him. He's the only way that we can be helped. If God has bound us with affliction and pain, who else can provide deliverance but him? Who else can help? When we're in a time of terrible need and when we actually real, because we always are in need. We just don't always notice it. We don't notice how needy we are. God wants us to bring, he wants to bring us to a place of trust, praise, and thanking him, even in pain, that that would be our willing, joyful response to God in affliction. When bound and we cannot be free to say, praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, bless his holy name. Job 36, 16. Indeed, he would have brought you out of dire distress into a broad place where there is no restraint. And what is set on your table would be full of richness, but you are filled with the judgment due the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you. Because there is wrath, beware lest he take you away with one blow. For a large ransom will not help you avoid it. Will your riches or all the mighty forces keep you from distress? Do not desire the night when people are cut off in their place. Take heed. Do not turn to iniquity, for you have, cho- you have chosen this rather than affliction. One aspect of Job's distress, it was very mental. It was spiritual. He perceived uh, he had this grave injustice that happened to them, and God wasn't doing anything about it. God wasn't speaking to him. And he's burdened with his loss and his pain. And really his inability to see what God was doing. He couldn't see what God was doing. He couldn't see the benefit for him then. He, he was struggling and questioning God. 
as if God had done the wrong thing. And he wondered, why hasn't God exonerated me? Why hasn't he justified me from my friend's accusations? And these thoughts, they distressed him. They restrained him from enjoying the richness of God's grace. And he judged the other parties as guilty. And thus, he put himself under judgment. As long as a person thinks they know better than God, they cram themselves in this miserable, uncomfortable position they cannot escape. And would you believe that your ideas and concepts of what God could do or should do actually make him smaller than he is? We think of this great miracle. If God would do that, well, then this could be the result. But that makes God small because you can conceive of it. God is greater than we can imagine. He is glorious. We trust our maker to forgive our sins, that he knows our needs and will meet them. Why not continue trusting him when our circumstances and lives take unexpected turns? And they involve pains. The success and wealth that Job enjoyed, if they could not deliver him or prevent him from the distress that God caused by his divine purposes. And this, if you take that trial as from the Lord, it changes the way you approach it. But if you just are wallowing in self-pity because you are the cause of it all again, you've removed God's grace from the equation entirely. And God wants to, our mindset to move from what's in it for me to humble faith and obedience to him. And the best example that we can consider of grave injustice happened on Calvary with Jesus Christ, the son of God, who was without sin, dying in the most humiliating, brutal fashion. Betrayed, tortured, died. That was his hour. That was why he was sent. Now, that is really difficult for us to take in. That for that, that's why he would come so he could suffer. Please turn in your Bibles to John 12, 25 through 28. See, in that suffering, God had redemptive purposes that the disciples did not understand. Jesus understood and for the joy that was set before him endured. And he pressed on. His face was set like a flint to go to Jerusalem and fulfill the will of the father who sent him. John 12, 25 through 28. Jesus said, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus was troubled at the prospect of agony on the cross, but he lived to do the will of the father who sent him. He recognized it was his purpose. That's why he came to suffer and die and provide atonement for sinners. So all who believe in him could be saved so that we could sing. My chains are gone. I've been set free because we've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Jesus did not say if only one person repents, it will be worth it. That did not come into the picture for him at all. 
He went to the cross for the joy set before him of glorifying God and obedience because it is a privilege to know God's will and to do it. That is why God loves you and he loves me. He loves sinners. He loves everyone that he's created in his image. And know that there is no wound we can suffer that God in his grace, mercy, and goodness cannot heal and redeem and restore and use to both save us and others from much trouble and pride. So why do we receive communion? Why do we eat the bread and drink the cup? Well, normally we eat and drink because we have to, right? Our bodies need that. And we actually like eating. I'm speaking for myself. I like to eat food and to have a coffee after church. Very good. Now we don't eat and drink this to survive. We eat and drink this because of the privilege of being born again into God's family, that we have received eternal life. We have been born again by the Holy Spirit who's taken up residence within us. We have been redeemed. And so we can partake of this as a symbol of the the body of Jesus that was broken for us and his blood that was shed to atone for our sin. And Jesus commanded his disciples during the Passover in Luke 22, 19 and 20. It says, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So we remember the body of Jesus broken for us, his blood shed for us. And we're reminded of the new covenant that Jesus has established by his blood that we receive by grace through faith in him. And we're impressed not really by the bloody scene on Calvary, but by the love demonstrated through that sacrifice that we can receive and walk in. That our maker would die for us. Let, let's live our lives in remembrance of him. Let's use our lips to bless him and to exalt his holy name, to receive his truth and to speak it forth in love. Could I invite the team to come forward, please? Um, as the worship team comes up, they will lead us in a song. And during that song, please feel free to come up and receive of the bread and the cup and then I will lead us in a prayer together as we receive. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, that you are the awesome, almighty God, the living God who created the heavens and the earth. You are our maker. You are the one who purposed to send Jesus before the foundations of the earth were laid. And you knew, he knew what he would suffer as he headed toward Jerusalem, that his hour had come. And Lord, you have insight that we do not possess. And so we come to you now as those who were once bound in affliction and sin, bound by death and sorrow, that you have redeemed and made new. Fully aware, Lord, that you also choose to afflict us and to chasten us and discipline us according to your will and your good pleasure, to change us to be more like you, to teach us of your ways and to humble our hearts before you. And so, Lord, we confess that we are a proud people, that I am a proud person, and that you have come to free us 
of the sin that doomed us to damnation and also the sin that besets us daily. And thank you, Lord, that there is hope and help and deliverance and guidance in you and that you are our good shepherd who loves us. Thank you for the opportunity to exalt you today, to remember the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus and and to remember him, to proclaim his death till he comes. Thank you that Jesus is coming back, that he will restore all things to himself, that before him every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, I pray that you would search our hearts, that we would confess our sin before you, that we would adopt a humble posture to receive your grace and mercy because we are needy. We are hungry and we are thirsty for you. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your sacrifice and the salvation you've given us through Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.